This is Pete Moore on Halo Talks NYC on location, Manhattan Beach, California, bringing in a new friend of Integrity Square, Kamal Gajrawala, head of equity research focused on consumer staples and the author of the new wellness initiative at Credit Suisse. Thanks for coming on. How are you doing today? Uh, living the dream, man. How are you, Pierre? Love it. Love it. We're doing well. Um, we are super excited that you have uh, brought your uh, research skills and scope to the wellness category, which we've now referred to as the halo sector. So we'll just do a quick plug, health, active lifestyle, outdoors. Um, so what was the, uh, you know, give us your your personal background and, and then talk about the team that you built. Yeah, I've been in the, I guess I've been in the investments business. I was one of those kind of kids that grew up always wanting to be an investor, that sort of thing. Um, I was in the investments business though, started you know from an intern and uh, came out into the world covering internet stocks just right during the internet bubble. Uh, saw a lot of new businesses, many of which expected to be incredibly, incredibly successful, uh, and several of which were, and a lot that didn't really work out, including myself. I thought I'd be really, really rich working on Wall Street in the bubble, but I rolled in right at the end. Mm-hmm. I, <laughs> and, did, uh, I did something similar to that, so keep going. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, so you know, we had to regroup a little bit. The offer came to say, hey, you can cover beverages. I didn't really want to do it. I thought I was a cool tech guy. And um, eventually got into consumer, got into beverages and, and found it to be a lot of fun, a different sort of dynamic. You're looking at very profitable businesses that have been around for a long time, incredibly, incredibly competitive versus inventing new business models. It's a different sort of analysis. Did that for a, a number of years, moved through the ranks, added uh, a global overlay. Uh, so we're looking at beverages globally. Then we started adding household products. I then went on to be an investor for about five years at a private investment fund. We invested in you know, what we like to think of as very high quality assets at better than fair prices. So we would look for businesses that we thought were going to be great and we'd want to own for an incredibly long time, long periods of time that are going through a difficult moment and we'd try to step in. Um, and more recently, kind of came to Credit Suisse as, a, um, as an equity analyst. I'll explain what, what that is in a moment. But um, as we're doing that, our primary sort of goal in beverages and household personal care as I returned is effectively to help asset managers make money. So anyone who saves their uh, saves their income with mutual funds, ETFs, uh, anywhere where your savings might be, you obviously don't expect it to sit there, you expect it to grow. And those folks, when they're buying companies that I may cover, like a Coca-Cola or a PepsiCo, will want to speak to an expert someone who spends all of their time just in that space. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm the guy that they will, among several that they will talk to to say, because uh, they're obviously buying hundreds of millions or billions of dollars worth. And if they're going to make that decision, they want to speak to someone who's followed the beverage space for whatever it's been, 20 years, that, that sort of thing. Um, as it relates to expanding into Halo, uh, which has you know been a bit more recent, but as I kind of looked at the history of what we were observing in the consumer product space, there was a couple of things happening. First, all the major companies, pretty much all of the capital they were deploying was some version of health and wellness, whether it was uh, discovering Diet Coke and Miller Lite or buying vitamin water, or obviously a series of deals more recently across across the spectrum. So you kind of know that that's where the industry was going. You knew this was a big thing. And you know, we had been watching sort of the play-by-play for, for two decades. 
Then more recently, we're looking and we're seeing that the consumer has been moving in this direction for a long time, but COVID really accelerated it, I think, mm-hmm. in a big, and meaningful and permanent way. At the same time, we're thinking, well, our job is to help other people make money. Our job is to help asset managers uh, find things to invest in. And there's lots of places to invest in the Halo space. We might as well be the, 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 the centerpiece for these folks, someone for them to go to that looks at the entire space. What usually happens on Wall Street, because we don't really evolve that quickly, what you usually end up having is something like a Peloton comes out and it goes to the media analyst because that person covers Spotify and Netflix. Or something comes out like a Celsius and it's covered by a beverage person. But there isn't really anybody who just looks at wellness across all of its spectrums, looks at Halo across all of its spectrums and says, if you want to bother to make money in this space, here's someone you can speak to that will help understand it spends their time on it, obviously works with folks like yourself to try to understand it as best we can across sort of the spectrum. And so we came up with this idea and um, narrowed down all of our work to, doesn't sound narrowed down, but uh, narrowed down our work to about 101 pages to Mm -hmm. keep it as safe as we could. No, it was a a great report. And for those listening, we'll put in the show notes on how to download um, that report. You know, as you think about these you know, wellness companies and halo companies that you cover in the public markets, they're obviously trading at significant multiples, um, which, you know, should correspond to their, you know, future potential growth. However, you know, in the halo sector, especially with Amazon and the, the internet, you know, the competitive barriers to entry are obviously much lower than they were when you and I started. Mm-hmm. Um, also internet companies back in the day, you know, you used to have your own data center. You, you didn't have the option of, Hey, let's just go to Amazon web services and, you know, bam, we got a company and go to Spotify, you know, Shopify. Um, so how do you kind of, you know, square, square the, the, the peg, if you will, to say, Hey, look, these companies are going to be really big companies and they warrant these kind of high valuations because I see where they're going to be on the other side. And that other side might be three to five years from now. Yeah. It's a, uh- I think you would maybe start with the fact that the category is going there with or without each of these individual companies. I feel very comfortable uh, that the category growth is there. So you're already starting with your, you're starting with the wind at your back. Uh, We think Halo as an industry will be a $7 trillion industry. I think the number that gets kicked around the most frequently is 4.6 billion from the Global Wellness Institute, which did, you know, incredibly good work around it. Um, However, that was a 2018 figure. Um, looking forward to when they, you know, when they update it for uh, maybe more recent, more, you know, for how things have changed more recently. But you know, we did our own work. We think that 4.6 in 2021 probably is around 5.8, going to about 6.9. Not um, not every piece of it will be a winning piece, right? There'll be parts that grow a lot more slowly, parts that disappear, parts that reemerge. Um, but at the end of the day, you're talking about something that's growing very, very significantly on a global basis. So, can they get those valuations? Well, if you're can part, if you can stay and participate and you have the offering, absolutely. The other areas that are important or the things that are just important to identify is what is the problem that you're actually solving and is that in any way differentiated? Mm-hmm. A lot of folks will have, I mean, companies, I don't know how many I'm meeting, but whatever, hundreds maybe in the thousands, whatever. It's um, I hear everyone's pitch about differentiation. Is that real? Is that true? Um, Barriers to entry are lower than they used to be in a lot of other th- in a lot of other businesses, as you mentioned. I think that's a very important point. 
That doesn't mean they can't be created with brands. You might the barriers to entry on infrastructure are lower than they've ever been. And the willingness for consumers to try different things lower than they've ever been. But that doesn't mean that brands don't still exist. But if you've somehow developed a real brand with a real um, with a real appeal that's authentic, uh, that can be your barrier to entry. And I think that's important because it's hard to sell that often to investors, strength mm-hmm. of the brand. If you can pitch that, if you can make that real, then all of a sudden, just because someone else can replicate something close to what you do, doesn't mean that they're going to be the winner. And when you look in, in the consumer space, at the end of the day, this is the consumer space because uh, actual people are buying it to live better, healthier lifestyles. Um, there is usually a small number of brands that dominate most of the verticals that one would look at, like a mm-hmm. Coke Pepsi or a Pampers and a Huggies and whatever you want to whatever you want to use. Got it. So, you know, as you look at some of the larger companies in the space, Peloton's made a couple acquisitions. Um, there are some buildups of whether it's in the beauty brands, whether it's in uh, the food and beverage, they seem to be dipping into the M&A mode earlier than, than they would have historically. So I, I feel as if some of these public companies use these earlier stage businesses to acquire as almost like a, an easier way for their own R&D because they can't create authenticity inside of their own companies. So when you see deals getting done, and you probably are privy to more of the actual dollars that are spent. Um, how do you think about that as a, you know, as an investment advisor looking and saying like, well, those guys overpaid for this company. However, you know, I'm okay with it or, you know, I'm not okay with it. And, you know, kind of manage through that. You don't want to, you know, take advantage of an opportunity to call out a management team, but at the same time, you've got to, you're on. You're in this middle position. <laughs> yeah, luckily I get to. I'm not beholden to anybody, so I get to kind of say <laughs> right. whatever I want. And one of the things, your companies go through different life stages, and there's a big difference when you're a large company that's profitable with a significant amount of revenue. It becomes very hard to. It becomes very hard to innovate some of these or incubate some of these smaller things. You don't know which ones are going to work, and it is so much energy, so much effort to keep the train that you're already riding going yep. and, and, and that's growing, right? Peloton is growing like a weed. There's a lot of effort to continue on that path. Um, but if, even if you look many of the best innovations across a series of industries, very rarely come from the biggest companies. It is usually what happens. The biggest companies can offer resources, can be great strategics to take something extremely valuable and scale it up. So big company only buys small company. If they believe whatever small company offers can scale. I think that's kind of like a critical point is, is whatever small co- the small company doing scalable? Then it becomes interesting to Peloton. Then it becomes interesting to Nestle or Danone or whichever, whatever you're looking at. And what you're seeing is because there is a lot of M&A, a lot of what you're seeing in the Halo space, what's interesting is that they do believe it to be scalable. They do believe these are things that can impact a P&L for a business that at the moment has you know, 2 million members uh, they think that these things that they can do, not maybe individually, but collectively, the series of deals they've done can have an impact on driving that figure forward. So, you know, when you look at companies, I've spent most of my time in the, call it the lower middle market or the middle market, you know, taking a company from $20 million of revenue to $50 million of revenue over a short period of time, you know, achievable. Um, you know, some of the companies that that you cover, you know, going from a billion dollars of revenue to $2 billion of revenue, you know, completely different story from a, from a size 
standpoint. So how do you think about, you know, revenue growth as, as the um, end all be all, if you will, of what some investors are looking for and then profits mm-hmm. later after they get that scale um, mm-hmm. or more disciplined approaches? So I think what's important is if it's, if it's going to be revenue without, without profitability, there needs to be a logical a logical path to profitability to understand exactly what it looks like. So for example, if you are spending a very large percentage of your business on marketing and you're, you have a very significant amount of revenue growth, um, in many instances, obviously depending on the businesses, but in many instances, I can look at that and say, well, over time, if revenue is going to grow at this rate, it, you're not going to have to grow marketing at that same pace. Marketing will be able to grow at half that rate or whatever it sort of is. And we've got some benchmarks of what we've seen for other companies where we think it might level itself off. Um, it might be infrastructure, where right now the infrastructure or whatever you're building, the widgets that you're selling, it's just very inefficient to do at 20 million or 50 million. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to get yourself to 150 or 200, at that point, you can scale this stuff. You can do it in a much more efficient way. And, and if it's an easy to understand logic path for getting there, then the market will buy it and believe it. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't mean we very frequently see businesses where it's not very clear what the path to profitability is. It's not that obvious. You kind of get this obscure reason why it might be there. And um, I do think investors can sniff out when a company is just driving revenue to transact as opposed to trying to make money at some point. And uh, those valuations will look very different. Yeah, so one of the things that we deal with as M and A advisors uh, is 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 entrepreneurs typically take valuations of public companies and then apply it to their own company, irregardless of size, scale, brand power, so on and so forth. So, you know, when I was growing up, it used to be you know 1994 to 97 when I was at Chase at DLJ, it would be okay. Let's take the public comps. Uh, let's multiply it by a 30% discount for private company valuations. And now let's do an additional discount, you know, right. based on the size of the company and other, you know, scars that this company has on it. So, you know, what, what's your view on the trickle down effect of valuations? And when somebody comes to you and says, you know, I'm the next Peloton or I'm the next Uber of Halo or wellness or you know, yeah. do you, you kind of say like, hey, look, man, I've seen this movie before. I've been through the Internet. You know, yeah. this isn't my first research report. You know, how do you kind of <laughs> think about that or, or bite your tongue? Yeah, yeah. Well, here's the thing. I mean, I've uh, I've met with people who have pitched me ideas that I thought were completely ridiculous for businesses that are now worth billions of dollars. So we I all have, <laughs> you know, I think I think you have to be careful because I think to be a really good entrepreneur to have something particularly special, you probably have to be a little crazy and some finance nerd like myself might not be able to have the creativity to sort of see it through. There's a million things that need to go with that, though. There has to be kind of the underlying thing that you're inventing or building or growing or making better, whatever that is. There's a million different things that one can do in this space, which is why we came into this space, because there's so much that can be done. Um, but then I need to know that, do you have the po- folks that'll do the things that you don't want to do, like the operations, legal? There's a lot of really boring things that are absolutely critical that'll help move the thing along that helps me feel better about how mature this this business is. Is it a really just cool idea? There's no real shortage of cool ideas. There's a much bigger shortage of people who can execute and produce them. Um, and it's the the execution piece of it is 
far less fun. Um, if one proves that they can do both, and then you start look, then there's multiple stages before you get to where I am, right? I'm in the public market. So I'm your kind of, I'm the last one you'll see after a series of rounds of series of things, obviously. But sort of when you get to that zone and we go over the history of the company, um, the question then is going to be, all right, well, now you're public forever. Now you have to grow for a really long time. And the numbers that we're going to be looking for in terms of that growth are going to have to be substantial. So um, it was cute when you were talking about the TAM before, but now it's not about gaining a small amount of revenue on some massive TAM. Now we know we need to know you got to, have to add 50 million, 100 million, 200 million a year. Can you do that with what you're up to? Do you have the infrastructure to do that? Is it even possible? Who are you competing with? Um, typically, by the time you get to me, several people are doing what you're doing. Uh, right. And so right. you have to know, is it really differentiated? Um, so I think it's tricky. Looking at public company comps as a bit of a survivorship bias to it as well. Mm. How many other Pelotons had don't, we don't even know the name of, we've never mm. heard about, that didn't become Peloton. I don't know if they're the only ones that had the idea. Well, when I looked at, when I looked at, at, at Peloton very early, um, and I didn't do the deals because... A week before I met with the founder, there was a bike out of uh, San Diego called the Espresso Bike, which was like a gamified uh, Peloton, uh, and it went bankrupt. So I was I was tarnished by that to say, well, you know, good idea and bad execution, probably, you know, mm-hmm. not the right time yet from a broadband standpoint, and I was wrong. Um, so, so I hear you on that. Let, let me ask you a question about you know, running your business based on quarterly earnings and annual reports versus the private groups that we work with. Um, You know, you don't have to mark to market every day. And if you're in a private equity deal or you're an entrepreneur, you got a five-year plan and, you know, you can have some hiccups. I feel like the public markets are not as um, forgiving uh, and, and are extremely demanding. So how do you kind of calibrate between hey look these guys missed the earnings but like you've just said over the last 20 minutes there's tailwinds in this business this is a good management team um yeah i can't evaluate this business every 90 days and think that something has materially changed so how do how do you think about you know maybe rewarding those who might be moving slower or saying hey look the public this is what you, you want to go public man like this is what comes with it bro yeah yeah this is how it goes <laughs> yeah. so there's a couple of things i mean the first thing that i think everyone needs to accept not just in the public world but also in the private world is that all investors have a like investors have an investment style and you're going to want to plug in with the investment style that is the right partner for you now if you're in the public world now you're meeting lots of styles. There are some amount of people who invest in things for six to nine months or or three to nine months and will predominantly move the stocks in that period of time is the narrative and whether you beat or you missed earnings. It's usually what moves the news. Mm -hmm. If you look at what moves stocks, if if we did a study on this from period zero to 120 months forward, so a 10-year period, if you look at what moves the share price, the shorter the time period, the more it's narrative beats and misses. The longer the time period, the more it's EBITDA and actual revenue growth. Wow. And so there's different ways to look at it because there's different types of investors. CNBC will always talk about beats versus miss expectations. You almost feel that it doesn't matter if you earned 
a million bucks or 10 bucks. It almost matters if you beat by $1 or missed mm -hmm. by $1. The reality is what you really want to do is make a million dollars, right? You really want to do is put up as much profit as you can. And I think what we're, what the way we look at it is we looked at every quarter as an indication on whether or not we are right on where this company is going to be over some longer period of time. And if they miss an expectation when the share price is down and we still believe that the outlook is positive, that for us is what we'd call a buying opportunity. Um, and exactly the opposite, right? If they show us, if they beat numbers nicely, but it's because they cut marketing spend and the outlook looks um, not just the outlook for the year, but maybe three years forward, it's looking like they're pushing up against the ceiling and now they're trying to cut costs instead of driving revenue. Then we'll have a very different opinion and the shares might be up. So um, I often like to say it's a lot of news in the short run, this quarterly stuff. It's not really that relevant in the long run. Mm -hmm. I think Buffett says um, in the short run, the market is a voting machine. In the long run, it's a weighing machine. Mm. And your ultimate goal is to weigh as much as you possibly can. And I think companies that can keep that discipline about them, which is not all of them, including very large companies that freak out about this quarterly stuff. Um, but if they can keep their discipline about them for the long run, then you'll start to find that those are the businesses that do best. And the best example I'll give you that is the number one performing stock of all stocks in the stock market uh, over since in the millennium, since the turn of, since, since we got to the 2000s, has been Monster Energy. Wow. And those guys, you would, you'd think it's someone who invented the iPhone or social media or something. Now it's an energy drinks company. Um, but those guys never really worried too much. A lot of volatility around the quarters, massive beats, massive misses, all these sorts of things. They just drove those revenues carefully in a very disciplined sort of way over a long period of time. And it's worked out beautifully. Well, I'm sure if they take their products five or six times a day, like the average consumer, they're probably pretty amped up about whatever they're doing and could affect the stock price. You never know. It's certainly working harder than everyone else. So. Yeah. So, so as some of these stocks start to hit, um, you know, let's take it, you know, during the, during the pandemic, you had these, you know, COVID stocks, um, you know, Peloton, obviously one zooms another. Um, how do you, as an equity analyst say, Hey, look, I love this stock. It's great. You want to buy it. There's definitely going to be momentum trading, but at some point I got to put a neutral or I got to put a sell on it because it's just not rational from a evaluation standpoint. At the same time, there's probably a lot of money to be made because the euphoria isn't over. So how do you maintain your authenticity without, you know, triggering some client to say, okay, you know, Camille told me like that this, yeah, it may a little more run here, but you know, you know, count, count your eggs and move on to some value. Yeah, well, I guess, man, every day there's buyers and sellers. And so almost whatever I say, I'm triggering somebody. I mean, you, you have a place in the world. So every people time listen to every time you're an influencer, bro, you're an influencer. You didn't even know it. I'd like to believe so. I think there might be six people following me or something on Instagram. I should, uh, one of which is my mom, but, <laughs> but uh, I, I think the, I think the way that we like to think about it, and at least the way that I think you make money in the space, when you see something that is so obvious, Peloton benefited from the crisis, and now every company that's benefited from the crisis, whether it's Peloton, Zoom, or Netflix, or whatever, all of these names are, are, are selling off. It is very, very obvious that that is something that was going on. Let's think about that to the next level, though, which is, well, is Peloton a different business than it was 18 months ago? And the answer to that is yes. Well, how is it a different business? Well, not only did they get a lot of bikes into the homes of 
their members, not only do they massively expand their offering to those members, creating more of an ecosystem, kind of moving themselves along the path of something like an Apple, but what they also did is very fundamentally change the way the consumer was thinking about pricing. It's meant to be this very expensive bike for the 1% at a period of time. And you might remember what I think they call ad gate when uh, you know, they had these ads that just made it seem like there was just this unattainable sort of product. All of a sudden, when people started to compare how much a Peloton cost versus what it might be at their studios that they couldn't go to anymore, their gyms, and they started to look at that all of a sudden, the kind of 40 bucks a month for the bike or 50 for the bike plus 40 for the entire household and you start splitting it, all of a sudden the price equation looks very different for Peloton than it did pre-pandemic. So a couple of things have fundamentally changed. You're in more people's homes, you're offering more product and they think it's cheaper. That probably means your outlook has changed, even though year over year, the market can say, well, whoever benefited from the pandemic is going to struggle now. That's a bit of a miss. I don't think that's thinking about it to that sort of next stage onwards. And I think the same thing we should think about from the fitness sort of world, uh, as, as the fitness sleeve of Halo is it does feel like everybody's going to work out more and how they're going to do it is going to be a mix. It'll be gyms will come back and studios will come back and at home with Peloton will all be fun. But the idea of working out has become more accessible. It's become more fun. It's all uh, changed in terms of its pricing. Uh, all of these things have permanently changed. And this including the desire for people to work out. You know, Peloton was kind of discovered as a way to address the reasons why people don't and make it a little easier. And I think several other companies now have taken that, have taken that mantle as well to figure out how they can contribute in the same regard. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great uh, place to conclude here because we're, we're big uh, believers and advisors to the bricks and mortar uh, side. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear your, your sentiment there. So any, any uh, you, you had a great Warren Buffett quote there before. You got any other quotes that you uh, live by <laughs> or anything else to leave our, uh, our Halo community now that you're officially uh, our uh, anointed brand ambassador, my friend? You know, my favorite quote, I guess, which I have hanging on my wall, which you can't Perfect. really see, is, uh, and this is true professionally, personally, and as it relates to how you're thinking about your body, which is um, regardless of any opinion you hear from anybody, uh, no one or nothing owes you anything. And so you got to earn it. And uh, the, the piece that I have hanging kind of in my thing is from a, a group called Ranger Up, a bunch of veterans who have a website that sell cool shit. And uh, you could get signs and T-shirts and things like that. And I think that's a good one because whether you're trying to live a healthier lifestyle or progress professionally or just be a better father and husband, going to have to earn it. Yep. Awesome. All right, man. Well, look forward to seeing you in person. Love the uh, the the hat attire. Uh, you and I will go to the Kentucky Derby together maybe one day. And bring Sounds some good, friends. Man. All right. Good to see you. Look forward to uh, meeting up in person and uh, greatly appreciate your efforts here. Anytime, man. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks. See ya. I want to thank my friends at Burn BR. R-R-N for sponsoring this podcast. They are the innovative company behind the world-renowned burn board. Many of you don't know, I was one of the top roller hockey players in all of Nassau County back in 1988 to 1990. If I had a burn board, watch out, I would probably 
being an NHL legend. Got a seven-day free trial on their on-demand library of hundreds of workouts. $30 off the purchase. Check it out at shop.theburn.com. We'll have it in the show notes. Use the checkout code HALO and go burn it on the burn board. Ice hockey in your living room at home fitness. Low cost, low tech, low impact. Go Halo, burn it up.